Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. Apple and Qualcomm are facing each other in courts around the world this week in a fight over royalties that's been going on for almost two years. It's one of the biggest legal battles in the technology industry. Speaking on Bloomberg Studio 1.0 in an interview that will air on September 26th, Qualcomm CEO Steve Molenkoff said he was optimistic about a settlement. We have a dispute over the price of IP. Uh, We think that's moving now into a period of time where our strategy is unfolding and the, and the environment is, uh, is such that I think you're, you're in a position where a deal could get done. Joining me is Matt Larson, Bloomberg Intelligence Litigation Analyst. So Matt, what's the basic dispute over? Sure. So this all goes back to a dispute over patent royalties or the price that Qualcomm is able to charge to license its technologies to uh, to handset makers, in this case, specifically Apple. Um, Qualcomm does a lot of research and development. They contribute to standard setting organizations that essentially establish how your phone connects to wireless networks. And in exchange for doing that work and contributing to standards efforts, uh, handset makers who implement those standards owe Qualcomm royalties. And uh, there's no set price. These are all subject to negotiation. Um, and so the, the parties a couple of years ago were in the process of attempting to renegotiate a direct deal from Qualcomm to Apple. Uh, Apple had previously paid through uh, third parties who actually manufacture the physical iPhone. Um, and they weren't able to arrive at a deal. So litigation ensued. There's a huge dispute. And we are where we are today. So there are disputes in different courts in different countries, and there's a hearing this week before the U.S. International Trade Commission, which is the second of two suits. So can you sort these out? Yeah, yeah, sure. So strategically, when you're looking at patent litigation, you file in multiple different courts for a couple of different reasons. They offer different forms of relief is the first. So the International Trade Commission uh, threatens a U.S. product uh, sales and import ban on products that infringe patents. So there you put some pressure on Apple's supply chain, potentially, if you win. Uh, You know, you compare that to a district court case where they provide money damages or, uh, you know, similarly, you might file a lawsuit in China because it's a a big uh, importer, exporter. Uh, So it's, again, a strategic hit at the supply chain. You also file in Germany because it's a fast jurisdiction. (laughs) So you can see these legal disputes pile on and there are countersuits um, and the whole thing kind of blows up to a large global litigation. So the hearing this week before the U.S. International Trade Commission, Apple's case is supported by the independent attorney assigned to represent the government's interest. Does that mean that Apple might win that? 
it's it's a it's a pretty good leading indicator. So the way that the ITC works is you have uh, the what's essentially the plaintiff or the complainant, Qualcomm, who owns the patents. You have Apple as the respondent who makes the devices that's accused of infringing these patents. And then you have the staff attorneys that essentially, like you said, represent the public interest. Will the U.S. public uh, be harmed if Qualcomm gets what it wants, i.e. to block the iPhone from commerce? Um, the staff sit through all the depositions. They look through all the discovery. A lot of that is under seal. And so it's really the only, in theory, objective view we have at where the case could come out. So the staff informs the judge. They say, hey, we've sat through the whole legal proceeding. We think um, once you review the evidence that's going to be presented at trial this week, uh, you'll eventually come to the conclusion that uh, that Apple doesn't infringe these three patents that Qualcomm has asserted. So usually the best way out of these kinds of situations is a settlement. We heard Qualcomm CEO talk about a settlement, but you also have two companies that are sort of used to getting their own way or going to court. So what's the likelihood of a settlement? Yeah, they are. You know, the, the settlements usually come about. The best settlement is one where everybody is a little bit unhappy mm-hmm. is, uh, is how it goes. Um, when you look at the the breadth of the legal dispute, there are about, you know, we've we've added them up and, and think there are about 100 individual legal proceedings across all these courts and administrative bodies that are reviewing validity of different patents. Um, when you look at the timeline, a lot of key decisions across China, you're getting some ITC decisions, you're going to get some district court decisions. These are all coming out in kind of the end of this quarter, fourth quarter, and then there are some trials teed up in the first quarter of next year. So uh, generally in litigation, companies like to settle on the eve of trial. You kind of know what your case looks like. You you know with a relative degree of certainty what the potential outcomes are. So everybody kind of sits down and, and arrives at, at numbers and figures that make sense. So what is there a number that would make sense here? Yeah, so <laughs> that was we've, obviously- yeah that, that's that's kind of the the uh, the million or, or multi billion dollar question. We've looked at this from a couple of different angles from a research perspective. I've worked with our uh, semiconductors analyst Anand Srinivasan, who's kind of taken a uh, a scenario approach, looking at uh, EPS sensitivities and where earnings might. Um, tolerate a licensing deal. I've looked at it from kind of a legal perspective, looking at comparable royalties uh, with other similar patent holders. Apple's done deals with uh, similar types of patents with Nokia, Ericsson, and InterDigital. And as a multiple of those royalties, and then again, based on our semiconductors work, we think that a per unit royalty of 7 to $8 per iPhone is the most likely outcome. Uh, it's probably lower, much lower than Qualcomm wants and higher than Apple wants, but right down the middle. Now, Apple has been getting its uh, modem chips from Intel. Has that hurt Qualcomm? You know, it, it's it's a it's a delicate balance between the the two major semiconductor manufacturers in the um, in the space. Qualcomm would obviously love to be the major provider, um, but at the same time, there are monopoly concerns that that Qualcomm runs into. So, I think sourcing chips from Intel isn't necessarily a huge harm to Qualcomm because, in theory, they're getting licensing dollars for utilizing Qualcomm technology, the standard essential technology, when they use an Intel chip or when they use if there were some other chip maker that comes in. Um, but at the same time, obviously, it's it's uh, it's not good for the chip business. The the more that digs into Qualcomm's chip sales, so um, you know it's it's a little bit of a balancing act between a focus on the uh, the chip side of Qualcomm's business and then the patent licensing side. So about thirty seconds here. When might we hear 
about a settlement. <laughs> so we, again, we typically think that uh, either on the eve of trial or right before. So I would say end of third quarter, uh, middle of fourth quarter. All right, we'll hold you to it. That's Matt Larson, Bloomberg Intelligence Litigation Analyst. Joining me is Jonathan Adler, professor at Case Western Reserve University School of Law. Jonathan, you heard the president say that the FBI has said they don't want to do the investigation, uh, that many Democratic senators are calling for an FBI investigation before the hearing that between where you have the testimony of Kavanaugh and the alleged sexual assault victim. So would the FBI, have you heard anything about the FBI saying that they don't want to do it? Well, the FBI has said they simply put it in the file. I, I think there's, there's some misunderstanding about the role the FBI typically plays in judicial confirmations. Typically, the FBI's role is one of collecting information, uh, not uh, verifying things, uh, not uh, evaluating competing claims, but rather collecting information, providing that information to the Senate Judiciary Committee, and then historically, the committee has worked on a bipartisan basis to fill in gaps and pursue leads or questions that the FBI background check raises. So that would have been the traditional way to handle this. Uh, in the Clarence Thomas and Hill controversy, the extent of the FBI's investigation uh, there was simply to interview uh, both Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill. Uh, I think what's, what's, what, what's going on here, unfortunately, is that we have two partisan camps that are both intent upon their particular approach. The Republicans intent on getting a vote very quickly. The Democrats intent on trying to push this confirmation beyond the midterms. And every development that comes along, including this one, gets pushed into that framework. How much is this beginning to resemble the Clarence Thomas, Anita Hill hearings? Well, it is a little bit in that there is a scheduled hearing where we are supposed to hear from uh, the woman who uh, uh, claims to have been sexually assaulted by Brett Kavanaugh and to also hear from Brett uh, Kavanaugh, although uh, from what was reported this morning, it's not clear that, that they both agreed to testify. But in that respect, it seems quite similar, and I think it's also similar in that uh, I, don't, I don't think the hearings are going to fully put to rest concerns that people may have about these accusations and their implications for whether or not Judge Kavanaugh uh, should be concerned or should be confirmed or not. As far as optics are concerned, if Kavanaugh does get confirmed to the Supreme Court, you'll have two men on the Supreme Court who have been the, the subject of sexual assault allegations. Is, is that a problem? Well, just to clarify, Thomas was accused of, of, of sexual harassment, not, not Sorry, sexual yeah. assault. But yeah, I mean, it is, uh, uh, we like to think of our, our judges and our justices as people being beyond reproach. Uh, we know as a historical matter, that's certainly not true. Uh, Justice Hugo Black had been a member of the Ku Klux Klan uh, and yet had a very fine and distinguished record uh, as a justice. Uh, I think ideally we would evaluate judicial nominees based on their prior judicial experience, based on their professional experience. Um, but in the current political environment, uh, I, don't, I don't think that's realistic. And I, I think there are reasons to suspect that uh, the, the, the nastiness and divisiveness of the current confirmation is, is merely a sign of more to come. In about uh, a minute here, what would you suggest 
to make these hearings more civilized, let's say? Well, I think ideally the Senate Judiciary Committee would be doing what it could to investigate these allegations uh, privately before having a hearing, doing the sort of bipartisan uh, investigation and follow-up calls and the like that is that has traditionally been done with questions that are raised by background checks. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it appears the two parties have not been able to agree upon that, and so instead we have the majority insisting on having this hearing and the minority insisting on putting things off uh, for several weeks, if not until after the election. All right. Thanks so much, Jonathan. That's Jonathan Adler. He's a professor at Case Western Reserve University School of Law. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.